The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Jesus came down with the twelve apostles and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out of him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For those of you who were here two weeks ago, I promised you a two-part sermon. So here we go. However, I feel I also owe you a refresher on what it was that I said two weeks ago. So I'll go through that very quickly. The readings from two weeks ago were two prophets, the prophet Jeremiah and Jesus, who is prophet, priest, and king. And to that I added a third, because a few weeks before that we had prayed for Martin Luther King, and in the collect we had prayed for Martin Luther King, your, God's, prophet. And I looked at what it meant to be a prophet, but I said one quite important thing first, very important thing first, which is that I am not a prophet. I am, in all of my life, an insider. And so indeed are many of us, not all of us, but most of us here are insiders. And for the prophets, there is something of the outside, outside the box, outside the frame, outside the current system. And to help us think about what it means to be a prophet, what prophecy means, what is prophetic, I talked about an Old Testament writer and thinker called Walter Brueggemann. And he talks about there being two aspects, two sides to being a prophet. The first is calling out the current system for what it is, for 
being dead, for being repressive, for suppressing our imagination, for holding us down, for making us think that things are the way they are because that's the way they have to be. And the job of the prophet is to say, no, that is not the case. In fact, things can be dramatically different. And the second half of what the prophet does is having essentially externalized that despair, talked about what it is that's wrong and how the current system is deadening, to talk about what a future might be, which is unconstrained by the present, which is different, which is outside all of the bounds and squares that we draw around our life, where we are free, but more importantly, God is free to be God. And that's what all of these prophets did. And two weeks ago, we talked about the first part of that, how these prophets had called it out. Starting with Jeremiah, just before the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem, burn the temple, take off the leadership and most of the people to exile in Babylon. Jeremiah says, you people are self-satisfied. You people have constructed these societal ideas, these structures which hold people down. And Brueggemann talks about that in three parts. He talks about the oppressive power of the state, which Solomon had built up with slave labor. He talks about affluence and how Solomon had helped to bring affluence. And what does affluence do? It ties us down to the world, ties us down to where we are now. It makes us think the material things are the most important. And of course, there's the flip side of affluence, which is poverty, which in itself is also a tool of oppression and keeps people down because there are the affluent who don't care and there are the poor who can do nothing. And the final thing he talked about was static religion, how Solomon and Israel had captured God and tried to pen God into the temple. But worse than that, to control access to God, physically in a building, through doors, but also metaphorically through rules which were built up and administered by a hierarchy, by the royal, by the kings, by the nobles, and by the priests. That's what Jeremiah called out. Jesus, the prophet, did the same. He talked about the comfort of people. He talked about affluence. He talked about poverty. He talked about how the structure whether it was a political power of the Romans or the religious and social power of the temple hierarchy, held people down, deadened their imagination. And it was for that that he was killed. And then Martin Luther King called out three features of 1950s and 60s America. He called out poverty again, the poverty which represses which keeps people down, which makes things impossible. He talked about racism, its pervasiveness. Again, how it held people down, how it deadened other people's imagination, how it supported, apparently, a social structure which was meant to be and out of which we could not break. And he talked about violence, the power of violence, the violence of the state, to be sure, but violence amongst nations as well. All of those things, 
is what those prophets did. So they call out this deadness, this heaviness, this thing which suppresses our imagination, which restrains our freedom, which restrains God's freedom. But having done that, having broken it open, if you will, the prophet also needs to do something else, which is to give hope for the future, not shallow optimism, but true hope, hope which is energizing that prophetic imagination, which sees that the future does not have to be given to us in the form of the present, that we can break out from that and do something new. Jeremiah didn't do so much of that. He spent most of his time criticizing the system in which he found himself. But even then, he talked about a time after the exile when once again there would be the sound of shouting and laughter and music in the streets, when people would be married, when there would be happiness, when there would be joy again in Jerusalem. It fell to Isaiah, however, the prophet Isaiah, to talk more about what that hope might be when the people returned from their exile. And that hope of return from exile is crucial. Because for those who are in Babylon, it seemed impossible. You can read the Psalms written in Babylon. It seemed impossible because the northern kingdom of Israel, 150 years before the kingdom of Judah, had been taken off into exile, dispersed and lost. And yet here was Isaiah saying, no, you will return to Jerusalem, but it will be under the kingship of God not under the kingship of humankind. It will be a different type of country, of people, of imagination of God. And that's what Jesus does as well. Yes, he calls all of the bad things out, but he brings this amazing, energizing hope, this imagination, which is totally unconstrained by the present. In today's reading, we hear of this multitude who come towards him. And this is a multitude of people in need. This is not the temple hierarchy. This is not the rich. This is not the comfortable. These are people who have needs, needs which have not been met, and it appears under the structure of that society cannot be met, and yet he meets them. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. This is the hope that Jesus brings, that what appears to be the way it has to be can be overturned, can be broken open, can be given to us. Jesus, in this passage, does what a prophet does in both aspects. He talks to those who are stuck in the current regime and who think it's good. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you and all speak well of you. 
What he is saying to them is you have found comfort in this structure. You have benefited from this structure, profited from this structure. This structure is yours. And that means you cannot see outside of it. And you may think that you're comfortable with your material things and with public acclaim, but you have no future. Because there is no future in this. And again, that is what Jesus was killed for, for calling it out. But he also offers this radical hope. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and defame you on my account. This is a new way of looking at things. This is the possibility of God's freedom. These people who have no hope now have hope, not optimism, and not immediately to be cured, to be sure. But these people have hope. In Jesus' life and death, we see both aspects of being a prophet again. The criticism of the state, the criticism of the power structure, the criticism of the wealthy and the affluent and the full and the happy leads to the cross and to his death. But this extravagant hope, this energizing hope, this imaginative hope is what the resurrection is about. Something crazy something impossible, something unpredictable, unallowable, and yet God allows it. It happens. And that is what the second part of being a prophet is about. It is about this energizing hope that in Jesus in particular, most fully, we see it. And then Martin Luther King, again, he pays the price, the ultimate price, of calling out what is wrong with the structure of society. But he also has this imaginative dream of becoming beloved community, where these false structures, these false consciousnesses of race, that we are different as human beings, for heaven's sakes. He goes, no. He talks about ending poverty. How can there be poverty? when God has endowed us all so richly, we have enough and more besides to share. And violence. We can end violence by modeling nonviolence, by showing how destructive violence is, how much it ties us down, how it eats us up. With love, we can do something different. That is Martin Luther King. And so that brings us to the question that I posed before. Here at St. John's Lafayette Square, on the corner of Black Lives Matter Plaza, on the edge of Lafayette Park across from the White House, what can we do? What can I do as an insider? What can you do as insiders? Well, we have had the chance over the past year and a half to see some things that we would not have seen before. 
As I was thinking about this sermon, I looked back through some old photographs from a year and a half ago, from that Wednesday in June after that Monday in June. And we came down here with the bishop to pray, except we couldn't come to our own church. About halfway down between H and I, there were a line of what? Soldiers, law enforcement officers. And we could go up to that line. They had combat helmets on. They had body armor. They had no names or identification. And they had rifles across their chests, just out there. And for those of us who have lived comfortable, full, happy, affluent lives, that was a stark moment. That reminder of oppression and what it can mean of the power that the state can wield, and also of that feeling of powerlessness, that we can do nothing against that. That was an insight for us. And poverty, you do not have to walk too far from this church to come across tents of people living on the streets. We can go home to our comfortable houses and apartments, I certainly do, but we cannot ignore that poverty in a way that we could before. And religion. Political Christianity. What a ghastly idea. What a travesty of what Jesus talked about. And we have had all of those insights over the past year. So what do we do? What can we do as insiders who can't ourselves be prophets? Well, my old church boss in London, the writer Sam Wells, has had something to say about this. He first quotes a French, a French cleric from the last century who said, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. Let me read that last sentence again. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. Now, what does that mean? We think in practical terms about how we're going to do things. It doesn't sound so radical. Is that living our lives as though God did not exist? But think of what we are about to do in a few minutes. We're about to receive communion, bread and wine that represent the body and blood of Christ. If we try to explain that to people who don't know religion, it sounds nuts. But St. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. That is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. That is what we are being called to do. But can we do that as individuals? Do we need to do that as individuals? No, Sam says we don't. In fact, quite often what we do not want is a charismatic prophet who leads us off into a cult. What we need to be is a prophetic community, a church. And we can do that. 
We have done in ways already that first part of what it means to be a prophetic community, standing up and witnessing to that exercise of state power that we saw, to the poverty that we see around us, and to what has been done in God's name, to God's word. But what's the energizing hope that we can give? What is that imagination that we can do? Well, let me use Martin Luther King's three categorizations of this. The first is poverty. What can we do on poverty, which is the other side of affluence? Well, we have a very handsome endowment to this church. I'm not suggesting we give it away. But could we think of, invest, of, of inventive ways to use that endowment to deal with some of the problems that we see around us in this city? Are there ways that this could be invested which would help with affordable housing? Which would help with the inequity that we see in healthcare or education? Are there ways that we could use that to make other people's lives feel better? It doesn't sound sensible. But maybe that's not what it needs to be. Maybe that's not what it's meant to be. We have this amazing parish house with a really amazing kitchen which is unused almost all the week. Again, are the things that we could do in our local community to reach out to people, to help them. And this outreach, we are generous in our giving of treasure, but how generous are we in our giving of time? And even when we do that, when we give our time to others, how do we do it? What if we went out into the communities around us and not did things for people or gave them things or told them how to do things, but sat with people and listened to them and empowered them and made them feel full human beings? We could do that. And with racism, we've seen that up close too. What can we do about that as a prophetic community? Living our life in such a way that our life would not make sense if God did not exist. Well, sacred ground is the start on that. It is people coming together to dig deep into themselves and deep into our history and deep into our present to understand what's wrong. That's the beginning. But moving beyond that, what can we do? We can and should fling open our doors and invite everyone and make them feel welcome. We should also partner with local churches, particularly African-American churches. But again, as I was saying, in relation to poverty, not to give them things, not to tell them what to do, but to stand alongside them as one humanity, saying this construct of race is a nonsense, is abhorrent to God. Again, we can do that. And finally, in relation to violence, what can we do? 
we can call out what we've seen and we can remind people about it and that in itself is a vital witness that we understand how oppressive the power of the state can be, particularly on those who feel they have no power. And perhaps we can help provide power to those people. That's one thing we can do. But there is also much violence in this city, which is person on person, not a creation of the state, although it is related to poverty and to oppression. We can stand in the way of that. We can also model what it means to be nonviolent, what it means to be loving. And we know what that is. We just have to do it as a community, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give the person the shirt off our back when they ask for the coat, to forgive our brothers and our sisters 70 times seven, to love our enemies, we can model all of that as a church community, as a prophetic church community. There is so much to be done, and sometimes it's so hard to think about how to do it. But in the end, maybe it is just as simple as us all living our lives in a way as if our lives would not make sense if God did not exist. Amen.